So for this morning, we're going to be talking about a vision of renewal. And I really want to encourage you to come back next week if you can, because these two teachings are intertwined with each other. This morning, we're talking about renewal. Next week, we're going to talk about legacy. Renewal, and then the following week, how do we leave a legacy? What kind of legacy will we leave, not only as individuals, but as a community? Because God is all about multiple generations, He uses big language like thousands of generations. And he wants to use you and I to leave a legacy not only to our kids and our grandkids, but our great-grandkids and our great-great-grandkids and on through the generations should he tarry. Today's message on renewal is tied deeply to next week's message on legacy. So let's get after it for our time together. It really is an incredible time to be an apprentice of Jesus. January 5th, 2020. And I'm sure you would agree with me, it's also an incredibly difficult time to be an apprentice of Jesus in the United States, particularly in Western hubs like here in San Diego. When we survey the land, it really does feel like it's complete disorder, complete chaos. It looks like a lot of things are dying in our culture. But we as Christians believe wholeheartedly that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. This means that God, in the midst of disorder and death, is actually the God of resurrection. Mark Sayers, in his new book, Reawakening Church, he looks at the cultural upheaval that's happening all around us, particularly in the West, and he exhorts us, the church, to look upon our moment through resurrection lenses. We must examine the possibilities of renewal through God's unlimited power rather than through the limitations of a post-Christian framework. We as God's people through our history have always experienced times of decline and times of renewal. There is currently no contemporary stat that I can find that shows the Christian church is actually growing in Western urban hubs like San Diego. In fact, we're actually seeing a mass exodus starting with millennials and Gen Z even further along the line is abandoning and jettisoning any sort of religious faith. The rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. The rise of the nuns, that's the fastest growing population of people in the United States of America. That population now equals the evangelical population, whoever you consider evangelical. It's an ongoing debate. We are, of course, beginning to experience not only opposition to the teachings of Jesus, but an increased hostility towards the teachings and against the teachings of Jesus. We have technology and the internet and apps, all wonderful. They've provided instant access to more information, more connectivity, more opportunity than ever before in all of human history. And it is also producing terribly ill effects on our souls. Social and neural studies, neural brain studies, they are only just now beginning to show us empirically the influence of our devices and our brains and our relationships with other humans, how these things are affecting us in negative ways. As a society, when we look out on the land, we are actually beginning to splinter. We are fracturing into tribalism. So each community has their issue, and each of those communities demand that their issue is the preeminent issue, and all other issues have to bow down to that one issue. And so what's happening is the polarization of each of these tribes, the spreading out of these tribes, and the animosity between these tribes is intensifying. So from the political divides, to the Twitter rants. The voices are many, and they are extremely angry. 
And really, when we look at what's going on culturally around us, what we see is that each of these communities with their particular issue, they're trying to build their own version of, a, of their own utopian kingdom with either themselves as the king on the throne or no king at all. In particular, Jesus as the king. So when you have two kingdoms, all they can do is war with each other. That's what we find ourselves in the midst of. Morally, as we go through 2020, I don't know how much crazier things can get for us as a society, morally, ethically. Much of what our culture currently celebrates as liberty, endorses as self-expression, and makes its pursuit of happiness the Bible unequivocally condemns as sin. The Bible actually calls what our culture celebrates as freedom a detriment to human flourishing. We have collectively embraced unchecked sexual expression. We, for the first time in all of human history, in the span of about a decade to two decades, are now questioning our formation and understanding of gender. And in some ways, there's great health to that, and in other ways, there is a disconnect from the way that God has made the world and reality. And as a result of all of this, this ubiquitous technical, technological advancement, this radical individualism, a result of redefining sexuality and gender, this result of political divisiveness, it has not brought greater joy and greater freedom, which was what was promised by all of these things. Instead, what we see is that humans are drowning in a low-grade fatigue, if not full-on exhaustion, Anxiety and depression are becoming chronically acute. Suicide, particularly among Gen Z, teenagers, is becoming the leading cause of death. Humanity, instead of being liberated and freed and joy-filled by all of these new things, is finding itself lonely and lost. And these times, in this context, is having its effect on you and on me and on the church locally. The secular worldview that we swim in and the frantic pace of society and the distraction of technology and all of these things have culminated in we, God's people, oftentimes looking and behaving in much the same way as our unbelieving neighbors. If you and I are honest with ourselves, sometimes we find ourselves just as anxious, just as exhausted, just as depressed, just as lonely, and just as lost. And it is times like these, loved ones, that God wants to do massive works of renewal. Massive, deep works of renewal. Not only in our personal, exhausted, worn-out, anxious souls, but he wants to do renewal in his church collectively and in the culture outwardly. And so in this intense, in this intense context of, of strife and transition and tumult, we believe God is actually priming the pump for a very deep work to be done in all of us collectively and in our church corporately and in our city collectively. So what are we to do? Neighbors Church, what are we to do? What are we as apprentices of Jesus and as a newly forming faith community right here, a little baby, not even toddling yet church? How are we to engage with God and how are we to engage with this crazy world that we live in? First, very first thing we do as God begins to work renewal in our souls is we let holy discontent drive us to pray for his presence. When God begins to do a work of renewal and bring revival in a community of people, this is so counterintuitive. It starts out by all of us feeling really crappy about life. 
We want the good stuff, but where God really starts to work renewal is with what Mark Sayers calls a holy discontent. There is this growing, increasing sense that my personal life is not where it could be or where it should be. There's a general sense that there should be more to what I'm doing in my apprenticeship to Jesus. There should be a greater sense of presence. There should be more power. I feel like I'm lacking. There's a holy discontent that starts. We kind of survey and look at the the state of the spiritual vitality in either our immediate families or our close circle of friends, and we find ourselves saying, I just ache for more. There's got to be more intimacy. There's got to be more authenticity. There's got to be more depth to these relationships that I am discontent with at this point. When God begins to renew a community of people, and particularly a community of Christians, church becomes terrible. You just find yourself walking into Sunday morning going, there's got to be more than a couple songs and some guy yapping at me for 45 minutes. Church is not satisfying. There's this growing discontent that there's got to be a deeper, fuller expression of what it is to be Christian than just a couple hours at these Sunday gatherings. Some of us, when God really begins to work renewal prayer in our lives, we look at the state of the church and we are so disheveled in our souls. We're so discouraged. We become distraught. We find ourselves lamenting and aching and longing for the church to be what she should and could be. And so times of renewal, they actually begin when we are overwhelmed. When we look at the direction of the world, we listen to the talking heads. We're dealing with warheads in Iran and North Korea, and we find ourselves saying, what? I am scared, overwhelmed, anxious, unsure, What is going to bring healing to the brokenness, the fracturing, the distraction, the exhaustion? And it doesn't just concern us. When God begins to work renewal in the world through the church, his Christians begin to say, I want to see real change in me, in my family, in my church, in my city. I don't want to just lament about it. I want to see effective, measurable change. And at the root of all of this, There's this holy discontent, and at the deepest places, all it is is this longing for heaven to come to earth again. That's why Jesus said, pray this way, Father, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. There is this discontent until the fullness of God's power and presence and reign rules over all of humans. And that's where our psalmist was in Psalm 77 that my wife read for us this morning. The psalmist wrote Psalm 77 in a time of deep decline and great discouragement. The psalmist was disoriented by the lack of God's presence. And it was a holy discontent in him that directed and empowered his prayers. Let me read it for you again. And read it with the way that the psalmist was writing. I cried out to God for help. God, please hear When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. I couldn't sleep at night. I was just stretching out my hands, untiring, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. The psalmist's discontent with the state of his life and the state of his society was so great that even though he was being worn out, the man was working himself to exhaustion and desperation to have God's presence move on his behalf. He would not and could not stop praying even though he was exhausted. He just The discontent was too great. It moved him to this intensive prayer. And our discontent catalyzes us to press into God in fresh committed ways. On January 5th, 
2020. Within three months, we will have all broken all of our resolutions. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just telling you the truth. But there are resolutions that we can make right now in this moment on January 5th, 2020, where we say, this discontent, I'm done with it. I'm going to let it drive me into the presence of God fully and completely for my well-being, my family's well-being, and the glory that he wants for himself and the world. And so we finally, at the beginning of 2020, say, I groan, I cry out, I'm not going to distract myself, I'm going to stretch out my hands, and nothing is going to comfort me until there are clear answers, as he has said he will answer, in response to these prayers for his presence. Second, when God begins to move in revival power and renewal in a community of people, we repent. We repent. This intensity of prayer, it leads to repentance of sin. Repentance is always a hallmark in any movement of renewal and revival in the world. And so repentance isn't just about turning from sin and fighting sin. Repentance is literally about turning from anything that is not of God. Repentance is a complete turning from all that is not of God. Repentance actually results in this radical reorientation. So we look at our calendar, and we turn our calendar over to God, and we orient our calendar around God. We look at our lives, and we say, what things here are distracting me from who he is, his presence, and what he wants to do in me today? And we repent. We turn from that, and we center our lives on him. We look at our finances, and we say about our finances, where is my finance being used for the world and for my own comfort versus for treasures in heaven and the good of this place that God has placed me? And we repent. We turn. We orient our finances around heaven coming to earth and our commitments everything reorients around Jesus and his will so everything our whole life becomes about God's presence it's it's abandonment Brie led us in pre-gathering prayer this morning and she opened with this idea of abandoned faith you jump it's all in there's no I'm going to dip my pinky toe in this in 2020 and just see if it kind of works out it doesn't work that way repentance says I dive in to the deep end. And so this radical reorientation, this moves us to obey the practices of Christianity that intensify this internal work of God. For those of you that have been on the journey with neighbors, you know that we are laboring to become what we just call contemplative charismatics. We want to see the power of the Spirit come, but we want to see the power of the Spirit come from a people who are at rest and really engaged with the presence of God. And the practices of Christianity, we orient our lives and our calendars through these practices because these practices, they transform us from the inside out. Through prayer, repentance, and living into the various practices of Christianity, this inward work of renewal begins to flow out of us into our spheres of influence. So we have these values at neighbors, simplicity, stillness, and spirit. And those values, they, they're a grid through which they open our eyes to the constant presence of God in this room right now. And they attune us, our values attune us to his movements, his actual soft and gentle and whisper-like words and ways. So these practices, and we call all of our leaders to engage, we call, if you're leading at neighbors, we ask you to keep a Sabbath. We ask you to accumulate 60 minutes of silence and solitude a week. And it's, we're not asking you to do more as neighbors church. We're asking you to do less, to simplify Because these practices, when we engage in them, they reorient our patterns of life rather than around the frantic pace of the world, 
They reorient our, our lives around heaven. And we become these little inbreakings of heaven on earth, just as Jesus prayed. Just to remind you, simplicity makes relationship with God primary. We let go of all of our worldly attachments and we say, I attach myself to God. Stillness, learning to be still for longer than five minutes in God's presence, just being aware of your breath in him, acquaints you with God's love. Sabbath keeping becomes a rhythm for us as a community that orients our entire week around our Sabbath time. Sabbath keeping is what orient everything's structured around this day of celebration and restoration. Silence. Learning to listen actually leads to saying the words that God would have us to speak. Silence isn't just about pondering our navels and being introverted. Silence is about creating the words that help create what God wants to create in the world. Solitude, when we finally get alone by ourselves with our thoughts and we become acquainted with ourselves, that helps form authentic community because then you're giving your true self to those that you're with. Community becomes actual family. This is something that is so burdensome on my heart for us in 2020 as we get our communities up and going. The Western church uses a lot of language, and it's all smoke and mirrors. We want to exist as family, where we care for one another, think about one another, love one another. It's terribly difficult. It takes a terrible amount of commitment, and it takes a lot of time. But please, neighbors, let us not just use words because they're buzz. Let us use words that actually affect change in ourselves and in the world. Community becomes family. Fasting intensifies our hunger for God. Bible meditation, taking time to actually become part of the story, it forms our stories in God's story. And then these Sunday gatherings, they become a priority not only for worshiping God, but for being trained and encouraged for gathering with the rest of the body. As we engage with God's presence through these values and through these practices, what happens is, you come to know yourself as actually loved by God. You, you know and experience yourself as loved by him. So that when you go into the world around you, you're now giving not your striving, not your exhaustion, not your fear, not your anxiety. You're giving your loved self to others. That's discipleship. And so these practices in the renewal, they make us a different type of people. Over time, these practices and these engagements with God and the Spirit and the Scriptures and each other, we become transformed. And we become what Edmund Friedman called a non-anxious presence in the midst of the panic. We become what I like to call a prophetic presence. And we're heralding to the world there's a better way. And we become a pastoral presence where we're actually taking our neighbor, friend, family member, stranger, enemy, putting our arm around them and saying, I know you're exhausted. I was too. There's a way to live life. Let me guide you. Let me direct you. Let me, let me take you where I've been. And here's the crucial key to all of this for us this year. All of this starts with us personally, but we have to also push against the radical individualism of our culture because it really is a broken form of being human. Renewal primarily manifests and multiplies through small, dedicated communities. We are so drunk on the big and the explosive and the flashy when the father and his son says, 
Look at the nondescript birds of the air. Smell the flowers. This is where there's power. This is where there's reality. Renewal manifests primarily through small, dedicated communities. So at Neighbors, for the rest of our existence, I hope you hear this every Sunday, you won't really be part of Neighbors until you're in a Neighbors community. One of those three, and hopefully those will multiply through this year. That's where Neighbors exist. That's the backbone of our community. That's the space where these practices are lived into together. It's through these dedicated, tight-knit communities that prayer and renewal and transformation just begins to spread like wildfire through a church family and then out into our city. In fact, if you look through the history of revivals, almost everything, every single one of them can be sourced back to this tiny little community of dedicated people praying intensely for God's power to break out. The Welsh revivals, the great revivals in New York. These revivals, they were all rooted in 5, 10, 15 people, not famous, not charismatic, nobody knew who they were, just discontent and desperate for God's presence, praying like crazy day in, day out, and then all of a sudden God says, okay, and the dominoes just fall for a season, and people get saved all over the place. Each of us needs to reckon with this this morning, and just let this sink in. To the degree that our discontent is felt right now, and we're not distracting ourselves from it, to the degree that our discontent is felt, that will be the degree to which we engage with the practices that acquaint us with God's presence. To the degree that you feel the pain, that will be the degree to which you say, I've got to do something different to find God in my life. To the degree that you're done being exhausted and distracted and, and unliking everybody that's creating such envy on your feed will be the degree that you say, I'm going to limit my time on Instagram and I'm going to spend a little more time in quiet in God's presence. It's, it's by degree. And to the degree that we long for God's presence will be the degree to which we orient our lives around his people and his will, not only for our sake, but for their flourishing. <clears throat> and this is where the call comes. This is where uh, the church world just begins to coach and counsel and, and, and say, you got to reach the lowest common denominator. Don't be too challenging. Don't use too big of words. Don't, don't ask them for too much. Make it easy. This Christianity, this call here at the beginning of 2020, it takes commitment. It takes commitment. And so we ask ourselves, how do we engage with this world in this crazy time? The third way is that we turn from consumerism and we become contenders. We turn from consumerism and we become contenders. What the church has done mistakenly, and I think unconsciously, is we have imbibed, we have drank in this consumer mentality from our culture. So we have unconsciously replaced the words of Jesus. Jesus says to follow me, carry a cross, die to yourself, sacrificially serve, love the other, even the enemy, at cost to yourself. And we have subtly, and in some cases full-on intentionally, as the church collectively, embraced the unbiblical idea that Christianity isn't about any of that. It's actually about God fulfilling our every whim. And we're taught this. We're taught this week in and week out, and we read this in our books. But you need to understand, dear church, this type of cultural Christianity, it collapses under the weight of a society that begins to say, no, 
If you're going to follow this Jesus guy, if you're going to hold to these archaic ideas of morality, you're going to be pushed to the side. You're not going to get the promotion. You're going to be pushed to the margins. And this self-help slash God fulfills my every whim and my dreams, genie in the bottle, God, Christianity, collapses under the weight of a society that says we're going to push you to the margins. This pseudo-Christianity, it falls apart because it doesn't have a solid theology of suffering of suffering that leads to character, of death that leads to resurrection. It skips all of that and jumps right to resurrection. But none of it works that way in all of the world. And this false Christianity, it's crushed. It is crushed when our expectations are not met and God literally says no. So again, Sayers is spot on. I think Sayers is a cultural prophet of our day. I highly recommend any of his works, especially his newest one, Reawakening Church. Sayers says... A pseudo-Christianity of lifestyle enhancement in times of renewal is repented of and replaced by a spirit-filled abandonment to Jesus, his will, each other, and the salvation of the world. And that's the call to us here at the beginning of 2020, the challenge to us. How discontent are we with our current state? What about the state of our relationships or our church, our culture? We want to embrace this discontent and let it drive us to intensive prayer and the practices that build intimacy with God. And then we want to engage in those practices with other humans around us and live this thing out in community that eventually becomes family. And this way of life, as I've said, is not an easy way. And this way of life takes a long time. Our fast food, high-speed internet culture has trained us for instant gratification. But loved ones... We may be the generation that's called to pray and won't see the fruit of this until three generations later. That's next week's teaching. That's a great sacrifice to embrace. I've had times where I've just been literally angry, like, no, 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 no. I want to see it now. (laughs) We'll talk about that more next week. Jesus himself said, we are to enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And so to close this morning, to bolster our confidence, I want to go back to our psalmist because we learn a lot of lessons from him and how he prayed for this renewal. Even though he was so dismayed, the man said, I grow faint. I just can't even, but I can't stop praying. I'm so discouraged, but I can't stop praying. We learn from him how he did that. When the psalmist was down and he was disoriented and uncertain, what he did was he chose to look back in the past and he chose to look to God's character. He chose to look back And he chose to look to, I believe, on a daily basis. Let me read this section for you again. The psalmist says in his disorientation, what I did is I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. We commit to this. We get rallied up here on vision morning as we're talking about renewal and it's the beginning of 2020 and we make our resolutions and six months from now we mm, still flat, still dry, still rough, still tough. We're in an election year. It's going to be super crazy. We're in for it as prayer people. And when we're disoriented and we're uncertain about what's really happening, we with the psalmist need to remember Remember our personal times of refreshment and joy in the presence of God. He remembered the songs that he sung, days of joy.
I did this this morning. I chose this morning to sit in silence for an hour before our t- teaching time. And where the Spirit led me was to my earliest days of Christianity, where there was such a sense of God's presence, and I was learning how to play guitar. I knew G, C, and D. And I remember this cheesy song that I wrote. It was like, roses are red, violets are blue, Jesus, I love you. It was that bad. But I remember bawling my, like, full-on snot coming out of my nose, bawling my eyes out, roses are red, I love you, G, C, D, off pitch. And I just remember sitting there thinking, those songs still have melody in my soul. 20 years later, a lot of hard lessons, a lot of discouragement looking at the world, a lot of what feels like God denying my prayers. But I look back and I hear those songs of that 20-year-old kid who all he knew was that Jesus Christ was alive and absolutely had saved him. That is the space that we have to go back to over and over and over and over and over. Those are spaces where God gave us that mountaintop presence to say, in the valley, remember, I am with you. I have not left you. He intentionally recounted to himself the former days. And number two, it wasn't only a remembrance in his looking back. He meditated. I love this. This word meditate in the, in the Hebrew language is the word haga, haga. And it, it carries the idea of chewing. Like you're chewing and then you're swallowing and you're like, whoop, you bring it back up and you, it's gross. You chew on it some more and then it goes down and becomes part of you. And then another part comes out and you chew on that a little. You're just constantly meditating. And what this man chose to do is he's like, you know what? Rather than obsessing about a future that he couldn't control and a present that he couldn't fix, he looked back on the past and he read about what God had done. And then he uses all of this beautiful language to describe the parting of the Red Sea and the thundering of God and his power. So over and over, he's in the stories of scriptures, and he's saying, look what God did there, look what God did there, look what God did there. I'm going to chew on that. If God did that, if God did this, if God did that. And at the center of our remembrance is the resurrection of Jesus. The more that we remember that God crucified and raised Jesus, the more empowered we are in our present moment to push forward with true, actual hope. Now, the psalmist not only looked back in this way of remembering personal and meditating on the stories of Scripture, he appealed to, he looked to God's character and God's faithfulness. This is so important. Everything was coming apart at the seams in his society, but he refused to look at that and say, well, because everything's coming apart at the seams, God, you must not be in control. Or, as has been my own struggle and the struggle of many that I know in this current time as Christians. My situation is not good, therefore, God, you are not good. The psalmist somehow resolved deep in his guts through remembrance and through meditation on these stories. As he looked to, he said, I'm going to not let the situation define God's character. I know God's character. And so he appealed to God's love and to his faithfulness. Listen to his words again. He says, my heart meditated and my spirit asked this series of rhetorical questions. Is the Lord going to reject forever? Will the Lord never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? What the psalmist was doing in this series of questions was he was being honest with his discouragement. Like, it's, this is super raw. He was just speaking out loud in his times of prayer the seeming lack of God's presence and what that was doing to his thought life, what it was tempting him to believe. But understand, this man wasn't hedging on abandoning the faith. He wasn't wavering. 
He wasn't allowing doubt to overcome him. What he was doing was in a very healthy and very raw and very real way. He was praying for renewal up front saying, here's what it feels like. Here's what it could be like. Here's what seems like what's happening. But he was... He wasn't ignoring what he was experiencing. But each of these questions, when you read through it, you know that they're answered rhetorically in the negative. For the psalmist, he was articulating his thoughts of fear through these questions. But you can almost hear at the end of every one of those questions, has God forgotten me? Of course not. Remember the songs I first sang when I became a Christian? He never forget me. Do you remember sitting on the couch the night that you began to actually sing to Jesus? You're like three weeks old in the Lord. He so spoke, he would never forget me. Did you read that there were four people that wrote about the historical resurrection of Jesus? Of course he hasn't forgotten us. He crucified his son. His son is alive. Of, of course. And so the psalmist answers these things in accord with what he remembers and what he meditates on. And then he says, as he looks to God's character, your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? And he declares it. This was the center of this man's faith and prayer. God, your ways are holy and you are great. And so in his discouraged prayers for renewal and presence, what he did is he said he reached these culminating points of being honest and raw, and then he just surrendered. You're holy. You are good. And for us, there really is no greater display of God's holiness and his greatness than the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. That is the defining act, showing who God is. And so as we pray for renewal in our personal lives and in the lives of our family and our city, we do it at the foot of the cross in light of the resurrection. And for us, at the beginning of 2020, if God breaks open on us and breaks open on Park Hill and breaks open on the churches of our city, and we start to see a massive influx of converts, great. God's ways are holy. God's ways are wonderful. And if God gives us another year of dry bones and really tough struggle, God, you are holy and you are good because your son was crucified for me and he is alive. And we believe and we hold on to the deep truth that one day all the wrong in this world will be made right. And every tribe that is fracturing into tribalism right now will come under the reign of Jesus and declare that Jesus Christ is king. And all death will be swallowed up by eternal life. Eternal life. That's the epicenter of our prayers for renewal this year, you guys. That's where we're going to take us right now. Jared, you can come on up. We're going to prepare to take communion. Bree had asked in our teaching notes, that it might be good to share some of the prayers that we're praying. And I think I'm going to hold off on that until next week, our prayers of legacy, because my prayers, are they're ridiculous. They're like totally impossible. Uh, I'm really excited to share them so that you guys can join in the ridiculosity with me. Um, but I've learned that my, my prayers, I now offer them as a gift of faith to a good God that can do those things. Some of the things that aren't as big, that are a little more tangible for us, that we are praying, is that we want to see genuine conversions and salvation. There's about to be 38,000 students flooding this campus two weeks from now. And the, like, the smallest percentage point of them even have any clue who Jesus is. Well, we want to actually make a dent in that. One soul at a time. We need to pray for God's power and boldness and wisdom and, and reality to come. We are, this year 
get into a neighbor's community, and we know that I am praying. I personally am praying for our church and for our leaders. I pray every day. I'm praying that our communities would become real family. And if you know anything about family, that means there's some stuff that goes on. So don't have this romantic idea of, I'm going to get into a community, and everybody's going to love me. We're going to be best friends forever. You are going to be forever best friends. But to get there, there's a lot of stuff that happens. So please join. Please get committed. We are playing, praying to plant multiple churches. The Humphreys are committing. We're meeting with them, and they are praying, and, and that could be our very first church plant out. We want to get behind them with everything that we have. We're praying for more church planters to rise up. We're praying for missionaries to go forth. Somewhere back in um, the early days of us just doing our prayer gathering at my house, um, one night, for some reason, I was like, let's just listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us right now. What does the Holy Spirit want to say right now? What does he want us to ask for for Neighbors Church? And it felt like, it felt like a million waves hit me, and I just heard, ask for the nations. We're on this multi-ethnic campus. We could send missionaries all around the world. Let's pray for a global movement of discipleship. And then next week, when our legacy talk comes about, we'll talk about the thousand generations after us. Do you realize you can influence the thousand generations after you? And it's what you were designed to do. Jared's going to lead us in song, and I think what I'd like to do is actually, let's, let's pray this morning. Let's break into prayer groups. Um, you got three, three songs? Two or three songs? Okay. Um, I, I think what, let's do this. Why don't we come forward and make the epicenter of our prayer time um, the bread and the cup, which is open to all. Jesus invited all to come to a meal with him to make him the center of their lives. And let's break off, let's grab communion, let's hold it together. And let's break off into groups of two, three, or four. And we're going to break off into prayer groups today. And if you're not comfortable praying in public, that's fine. You can just sit quietly in the circle and don't feel any pressure. But during this first song, come and dip the bread. And I want to remind you that it is going to get soggy and messy. It's such a beautiful picture of what real Christianity is. Like communion itself, we hold this bread that gets soggy and sticky and it drips down on our fingers. And that is the reality of Christianity in this world. But at the center of that is this remembrance that through the mess, Jesus created order through resurrection. And I will come up and I, I want us to pray for renewal personally, pray for renewal in our church and in our church families. And I want to pray for this year that God would just move in our midst, shape us in ways that we could have never imagined, but with, with communion with each other and him at our center. Did all that make sense? Okay, cool. During this first song, come on up. Grab the communion. Uh, Esther and Western are going to be serving communion. Is that right? Okay, cool. Father, anything that's not of you in all the just words that just came out of my mouth, I just pray that you, Spirit, would take take your words, take your power, and and move in our midst today. It's in tiny little communities like this that you changed the world. I know that sounds so outlandish. And we may never get to see something like that. But at the very least, we can obey in prayer and beg you in our discontented state to move on our behalf and move on our city's behalf. Today, as we come to communion, may we put 
the cross and the resurrection at the center of our remembrance and our meditation, and may it direct us to eternal life. Guide us, Spirit, in our time of prayer as we pray with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.